Doc Julian is just a great guy to be around, which is good news because he's around a lot. Aside from being one of Chicago's busiest, most highly regarded musicians, he's one of the supporting players on radio legend Steve Dahl's weekday podcast, as well as his afternoon radio show on WLS. Combined, that's six hours of talking into a microphone per day. A formidable gig, especially for a guy who sort of happened into a career in broadcasting. Not that he didn't have the genes for it. His father, Dale, was an Emmy Award-winning producer for WGN-TV back when local television was live and peopled with multifaceted broadcasters who did everything but sweep the studio floor. And his uncle Wayne had a long career as a radio broadcaster. But if Dog had any radio dreams of his own growing up, they were more of the top ten variety. As the frontman for The Slugs, a hard scrabble rock and roll band that he co-founded with his brother Greg in 1983, Dog and company built a reputation as part class clowns, part hard-drinking, fist-fighting, underdog local rockers. They had a good run, but never achieved that ridiculous coveted rock star level of fame and success. And honestly, this is the part of the story that most interests and intrigues me, because those youthful dreams can die hard. And what do you do when that happens? You can say, screw it and put it all behind you. You can try to constantly recapture those glory days. Or you can stay in the game, mature, dig a little deeper, recommit, and see what kind of artist you really are. At the same time the slugs seemed to be winding down, Dog joined Poi Dog Pondering when that band's leader, Frank Ornell, relocated to Chicago from Austin. With Poi Dog, Dog was able to focus less on running the show and more on getting better and better just practicing his craft. He later formed Expo 76, a hugely popular group that breaks the mold on what a cover band can be. And even more recently, he co-founded the new band The Sunshine Boys. Add to that the occasional odd job like actor Michael Shannon pulling together a group of local all-stars to do a Smiths tribute. And add to that the fantasy-fulfilling day job of sitting alongside Dahl, a radio idol of dogs since he was a teenager. And it may all help to explain why when I ask him if it hurt to let go of those rock and roll dreams that didn't come true, he looks at me like he doesn't know what I mean, like I'm speaking another language. His look seems to be saying, what do I care if I'm not living that dream? I'm living this dream. A dream is a dream, right? My guest today is the great dog, Julian. Later in the show... Sue Salvi has some thoughts on how to handle the high cost of higher education. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Now, didn't you also, uh, did you work for Sports Channel or? Yeah, years ago. Years ago. When it was called Sports Vision. Sports Vision. So this kind of, <clears throat> sort of, this is like the family business, really. It's my father um, worked for 30 years, something like that, at WGN. Yes. As a producer and director. and I, um, I read about that. That's yeah. right. So what, what exactly, he, didn't he produce a show? An Evening With? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was um, won an Emmy for that. I won think. an Emmy for that, and that was uh, kind of in the in the old days. And I was just thinking about that was I was walking up Michigan Avenue, what it what it used to be, and what kind of uh, vibrant uh, nightlife sort of scene was happening down there. But he, I think, was able to kind of combine the things that he really loved and and um, turn 
one of the studios on, uh, into, into like a, a nightclub setting. So he was always out looking for talent. You know, he was always out hanging out with Sarah Vaughn or whoever it was, you know, Quincy Jones. And oh, I walked out of Bob Dylan, some pimply faced kid who couldn't say whatever. But he was but he loved music so much and turned me on to music at a very, very early age. So, but then he would do these live shows, you know, at, at WGN in, in one of the big studios. It was all set up like a, like a nightclub, tables and chairs, swinging band and everything like that. Man, and, local television like that, you just... Oh, it was a, it was a great, a great place for me to, to essentially grow up. I mean, it, it, it was... Um, so what, what, what years are we probably talking about? For, well, for, for myself, I was born in 1962, uh, and by the time I was... In kindergarten or something, five or six, um, my dad had called home one day and said he was having trouble with this kid he was trying to direct in a, in a commercial. And, no, you know, I had my mom bring me down there, and I started doing commercials as a young kid. All I had to do was show up and do what my dad told me, you know, walk through the swimming pool there, the little waiting pool, sit down and play with this truck. Go. And I did it, you know, so I just because it was my dad telling me what to do. Sure. So from very early on, I did TV commercials and we did those for a couple of years until my brother and sister and I all did them. You know, I would think I was the first one, maybe because I was home from school that day. I wasn't old enough or had a half day at kindergarten or something. But so we all did commercials. And, and then I suppose, um, you know, you get to a certain age and you're not that you know, whatever it is. But, but did you ever want to like be a kid actor or? No, you know, I, I, I didn't. I don't, th I mean, I really enjoyed doing it, but it just, it was ingrained in such an, at such an early age that it just seemed like a normal thing. It just seemed like that was, that was my childhood. You know, I, I mean, my dad very early on put the kind of the mental hammer down about like, man, these people, there's no big deal about these people just because they're on TV. They're not better. There's no, there's nothing to be starstruck about. There's no, you know, they're, you know. Right. And he, he and you'd hear stories, uh, showbiz stories about, you know, bad stories, you know. Oh, there's, whatever, you know. Oh, I was working with Rosie Clooney and she comes and she's all beat up. I know that Jose Farrar has been smacking her around, whatever, stuff like that, you know. Right. So I heard these kind of showbiz stories my whole life. If you want to connect that to sports vision, yeah, he, after he left WGN, he had his own production company. And, and in the very early stages of what's now, I guess, Sports Channel, it used to be called Sports Vision. And this was going back to the 83 White Sox. Right. Weren't the White Sox TV. like the, Right. That was the Einhorn, first. Eddie Einhorn was like, you know, one of the partners in this in Sports Vision. So it was, it was a thing, you know, you... you Channel 44 would sign off, and then you'd click this clunky box. I remember that. And then the socks would come on. and, and it was, uh, Wasn't it, um, what did they call that, on TV? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like on the, TV. It, yeah. it was kind of the predecessor of cable or whatever. Yeah, it was a very early thing, and it just it, it was a box that sat on top of your TV at your house or, or your tavern, and you just clicked it. And they had special events sometimes, like... Uh, well, yeah, because, you I know... they had, like, a Stones concert, and uh, I vaguely remember some pay... I just remember thinking, we're going to be paying for all of this eventually. Yeah, really, very very, very smart. And, and they 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 were the the pioneers, and, and our, our productions over there lasted only a couple of years. I mean, you know, there weren't enough subscribers to keep the thing afloat, so... Um, that went under and stuff, but you know, I, uh, 
I saw Hawk Harrelson at the at the Sox game over the summer when we were doing a broadcast there, and I was like, Hawk, you don't remember me, but we we were part of your first floor crew. He would be there just learning the ropes of broadcasting, you know, like kind of learning how to – he'd sit there in the studio in between innings, and he'd read a couple scores, and he'd go, all right, let's throw it back out to Smokey Joe and early Gus Wynn, and then they'd go back out. So he was sort of learning his chops, and now it's weird for me to think that – He's retiring. You know, it's like, whoa, I just, it was a strange, <laughs> strange sensation. Happen? Yeah. So, yeah. So I've been, you know, he, he started his own production company and he staffed all of every, you know, all the, all the behind the scenes crew and everything and, you know, nepotism. He got my brother and I working down there. And so that was, that was a fun, fun gig for us for a while. You know, the other thing I read about with your dad was, I think it was Jack Rosenberg, who was like a great old producer, I think, from WGN as well. Mm-hmm. Your dad was somehow credited with um, coming up with a, s- a certain sports shot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like he, he went out to center field or something like that to get a yeah, shot? Up at, uh, on the northwest side of the city, there's a thing called Fillin Stadium, which right. is like a sort of uh, mimics a big league ballpark, but all the, all the local little league kids get a day out there and they play you know, tournaments and out at Phillins. It just has a different experience. It's So they, WGN would be broadcasting games from there, and I don't know the exact year, but I know that he and his crew uh, at some point lugged a camera out to center field for uh, and essentially originating the center field camera shot out there in Phillins when they just thought, wouldn't it be something if we could see what kind of pitches are being thrown? It's a really good angle. You can get a bead for the what the catcher's doing, the batter, and everything like that. So they they lugged one of these old time cameras out there and gave birth to the shot. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So it, it's the shot that you see in every ball game. You know, it was originated out there. So and and so what was the that show we were talking about? I think you said it was uh, an, an evening, evening win. What what was the basic premise on that? It was like just performance, like just singers and nothing but performance. Yeah. Just uh, there's a there's a thing that I'll look at from time to time, which I think is on fuzzy memories. Um, I've got all these old archival clips of TV shows here in town. And I'll see a, a watch a video just so I can see the slate that's got his name on it, where he's directing a live performance from uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Wow, Jerry Lewis's kid. <laughs> yeah. So I just see his name on there, you know, WGN and director Julin, and and uh, I just get a real kick out of that because there's there's not a lot of that stuff <clears throat> uh, around anymore. The, I you know um, all the commercials that we did. And um, they were all either destroyed or taped over, or wow. whatever, you know. And it's it's like the first however many years of the Tonight Show, just some it's taking up space in a warehouse. Get it out of here. <clears throat> did, did any of that stuff survive? Like- no, no, not a bit of it. And um, it was before the advent of the home VCR or anything like that. You know, there's no, there's like such scarce evidence of what he did. And you know, there was a show that he did in Ireland with Donald O'Connor that, you know, I would love to see now, but it's not out there. There's there. We did have some clips. My brother for his memorial, my dad's memorial service put, put together some, uh, some clips of a show that he did with Pearl Bailey and Louis Belson. And that wow. was that, and he was, uh, he was actually out uh, talking with Pearl as part of some, some shtick before the, the show. So that was really cool. And to they see. were married, right? Yeah. 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 Louis and Pearl, not, right. not Pearl and my dad. <laughs> right. so, but yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it just it seems like it would be a, would have been a blast to be involved in television at that. Point. I think so too. I think the the um, that that live element is you know the closest I really got to it was at Sports Vision. It was nothing you know, but it was it was just it just seems so exciting, so vibrant, so you never know what's going to happen next. And I and as you point out, I love the fact it's it's reminiscent of SCTV where Floyd. The uh, the newscasters also count Floyd, you know, the, right. the horror host and stuff like that. So uh, just, you know, everybody's doing double duty. They're doing voiceovers. They're do- they're on camera reading the just news. Just really cool. I mean, I mean yeah. actually, I don't know if you, you've been on the morning show, but that also on GN, to this point anyways, has that kind of hours of just running around doing stuff out in the yard, doing stuff in right. the studio. It does seem to be the last remnant of that kind of exciting uh, you know, sort of live TV experience for hours, for hours and hours, they're doing that. And the last bit of anything kind of coming out of those studios, you know, anything original here in Chicago being, you know, shot locally and stuff right. like that. And they're, it seems like that's the last bit of that anywhere in town. I know. Unfortunately. It's, it's, yeah. It's kind of sad. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your music history. I mean, you and your brother played a lot together. I've been playing in bands since I've never not been in a band for basically 40 years, you know? And once high school was over, my brother and I were kicking around and we had another friend that, that we went to high school with and none of us were necessarily away at school or anything like that. We were kind of piecing stuff together. Um, but we started working with my dad at Sports Vision and we wouldn't have to come in until three or four in the afternoon to do you know, a night baseball game or something. So we kind of had our days free and we were making a little bit of money. And so we could, we, we bought, I was like, let's, let's form a band let's, and we'll call it the slugs. <laughs> it was like that, that simple and stupid. And then it was like, okay, we did So we, we would practice in the afternoon. And I guess that was around 83. I think the slugs first started getting together and playing and stuff like that. It took me a while to start writing songs and but uh, yeah, we started around that time, and you know, when when you're kind of underemployed, it's and living at home, it's a pretty glorious time to dick around in the afternoons and play music. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty easy thing to do, and so that's how we that's how we first came together doing the slugs. So, how big at that point are your rock and roll dreams? I mean, are, are you seriously thinking, you know, the big time? Are you doing it because it's fun? Like, yeah, I think. Um, I, I never, I, 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 I don't think I started out thinking, yeah, the big time has got to be, it's, you know, I, I didn't have, I didn't have that vision. I didn't have that motivation. I think what I wanted, I wanted to be the, the writer. I wanted to be the writer. I wanted to be like the Pete Townsend that wrote the songs and handed them off to a big, larger than life daltry at the front you know that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be the genius just the writer you know i didn't necessarily want to be the singer or the front man at all i i i wanted to call the shots i wanted to guide the musical direction hard to be in a band i think always like yeah personalities Mm -hmm. all that stuff family in your case too i'm sure that made it interesting it it made it, it made it kind of notorious it made it kind well, of... You know, it's funny. I, I, I'm going to... I hope I won't embarrass you, but it, it, it actually... It, I, I saw this... I found this old Reader article, and it, it's 
it amused me in a sense because it's so not my image of you, mm-hmm. the way it's portrayed here. And yeah. it's like, and this actually sounds like someplace I wanted, I wish I could have been at. Mm-hmm. It says, tell me if you remember this. At the band's annual holiday bash at Lounge Axe, the group's two brothers, guitarist Dog and bassist Greg Julin, exhibited positively Kinskian tension. I think he means Kinksian. Oh, did, oh, I thought he meant Kinsky, like Klaus Kinski. No, no, and, like uh, Kinks, like the feuding oh, Kinks Kinksian. brothers. Yes, <laughs> I read it wrong. You're absolutely right. That's what it was. I, yeah. uh, no blows were actually thrown, but the increasingly bitter and inebriated pair seemed fully capable of mutual fratricide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this is the part I love, and you'll probably be mad at me about, but the show ended with an almost incapacitated dog glaring at the audience <laughs> I'm not leaving you until you stop looking at me, he said. <laughs> I mean, there's something so rock and roll, also brother, oh, yeah. like all of that yeah, yeah, about that was, it. But that's a pretty funny line, I got to be honest with you, because the people were like, what in the hell am I looking at? Yeah. But that, 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 that particular night is... How that, close were you to not being a band anymore at that point? Oh, we, you know... Did it go on after that point? It's so funny because you'd think... We would have broken up on the spot, you know, and it, it should have, you know, possibly should have, but we all went out to, to the diner around the corner after that and just stewed into our breakfast, right? You know, it's, we, we had some real doozies. Some well, real... what was the source of the tension? I think that um, there's probably one element of it that is uh, the younger brother being at the front and the older brother was really the guy that I kind of owe everything to. Right. You know, he, right. and I want this to be on record as I'm saying everything <laughs> else, because he really encouraged me, just came short of forcing me to play the guitar. Uh, he must have known something or else he, I mean, you know, he, 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 he's always had a big brother sense of protection over me, even at the height um, or depth of our feuding. He, he really looked out for me and he really showed me the things that I eventually ended up doing and ended up loving. So, um, you know, there's also, um, there's also the, 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 I'll cop to it. Like if there's, you know, there's, there's definitely like an ego, there's definitely a, there in, in my kind of probably being at the front or, you know, wanting, wanting some sort of glory or, you know, stepping out on my own for gigs or meeting other people, other bands, you know, like there's a kind of a, there's a sort of a, an ambitious and I kind of thing about that. There's a bit of a climber element to that, I suppose. And there's probably times when I distanced myself from the rest of the band in search of personal glory or whatever like that. Um, and that, you know, that definitely m- cause some division between us or cause some tension and um and on on that particular night um what do you remember i remember it's a notorious night it's a notorious night and i remember what happened and and that's an article by bill wyman the 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 sidebar story to that night is yeah we would get hammered on stage and it was our holiday pageant and it was really fun and it was loose and you know in the era of uh, the replacements and all that, all that sort of uh, Midwest loser. Who also had kind of a famous night. So of, yeah. yeah, they had, they had, <laughs> I think, a lot of famous nights. Um, uh, but uh, so we were, you know, we were 
pounding down Jägermeister or brandy and coke, whatever it was. You know, we were we were we were hammered, and it was part of our shtick, I suppose. There was a time in Chicago when everybody got signed to a label except for us. We were sort of holding the door for everybody, and at that point, at that point in time, we'd already been around for a decade, and we were running on, you know, we were a little um, beaten down by um, kind of. Uh, I'm not not wordplay, but you know you're slugging it out in the in the trenches for a while, and you're not you're not getting it. But I, I understand why we didn't make it. But um, on a night like that, that holiday pageant, what was happening off stage? It was at Lounge Axe, and the bar had and it was a great turnout, a big night, you know, lots of cash. The bar had been robbed while we were on stage. You know, I think they had brought a big box of money downstairs and um the bar that was stolen and so it was this thing like party's over shut down gotta go um but it just came up to us on stage we didn't know anything about the robbery but it was like you guys gotta go time to get off time to get off and so everybody in the band was filtering off but you know i'm up there i'm super overserved, and i'm all of a sudden gonna break out into my solo act and greg's at the side of the stage he's like get off, get off the stage, you know, like we have to get in and, 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 and me not knowing why he's calling me off. I'm like, oh, he's just jealous that he can't do this, that I'm the solo guy and I'm going to do this because I can, you know, because I'm so great. And he comes up on stage and he like pushed me back into the amps, you know, into the stacks of amps. And so we, you know, we're having, you oh, know, we're man. collaring each other on stage. I have to say two other things, two other fight stories that we had. We, there was a club called the West End, which was over on Racine and Armitage, which is now called West End Dental. But it was a club, a great little club, where Husker Du would play, the replacements, you know. It's and now it's West End Dental. West End Dental. Oh, Jesus. Sue Miller from Lounge Axe used to run that club, and she helped us out so much by giving us our first Wednesday night gig in the city, and we did well and, you know, went on from there. But we had a fight after that. It's we're like at you know going to blows. We're punching each other out, and it spills around. We're chasing each other around and fighting down to the next corner in front of some other bar. And these people see us going at it, and they open the door. They're like, "You hey hey, you want us to call somebody?" Blah, blah, blah. And we both look up and we go, "No, it's cool. We're brothers." <laughs> and we go back to beating each other up. <laughs> and, I mean, and then and then finally. From the brother stories, we we had a fight in a parking lot uh, behind a place called the Ribco in Rock Island, the Rock Island Brewing Company. We played some crazy gig down there, and back then, this is the when we both had long hair, beautiful long wavy hair, and we're smoking cigarettes. And we're having a fight in the backyard. He's got me in a headlock, and my cigarette or something comes loose, and it's in my hair, and hit. <laughs> Big brother, he's like, oh, let me get that for you. He's like, he's like trying to pull out the cigarette, you know, because he's still got this protective thing kicking in, and that that makes me mad. And I'm fighting, and he goes, no, I'm trying to pull the cigarette out of here. And then it just it it just amped up the fighting in the weirdest way possible. So he, on one hand, he's got my well-being, you know, in mind, and the other hand, he's throttling me. So we had complicated fights. So, I mean, at what point do you say, okay? We've probably ridden this band as far as we can ride it, and 
that happens around 2000 or earlier than that? What happened was one of the things um, that sort of further um, uh, put distance between me and the band is when I joined Poor Dog Pondering. Right. I started playing with them in in 92. Um, How did that happen? Max Crawford, the trumpet player, an accordionist, and, uh, and Frank Orle, the singer, they left Austin. They moved up to Chicago. Frank had fallen in love with Bridget Murphy, a local performance artist, and he had moved up, and he had, he, I think he was a little disillusioned with Austin, and they'd been through kind of a three-album treadmill with Sony, and I think he, they were just, he was looking to get away. I don't think he wanted that part of the, the rock world anymore, and maybe he felt the world in, in Austin was getting a little claustrophobic, and he wanted to move on, and he loved Bridget, and he loved Chicago house music, and he wanted to just kind of do other things, I think, and left that band kind of like not sure if he was breaking it up, but he just knew he was moving out of town. And because I had been playing with Bridget in her Millie's Orchid show for a, a number of years, that by that point, uh, a band formed, uh, a collection of musicians formed to back up the singer Sid Straw uh, for a show that she was going to do. So it was all this kind of, you know, this loose stuff that musicians do, like, hey, let's let's put something together, let's do this, yeah, I'll get this person, and just sort of form this collective, sort of formed loosely and casually. And, um, and Frank and Max, they, they were part of this band, and they then started doing these monthly shows at Lounge Acts to make their rent and just to kind of keep playing music and keep doing stuff for uh, Chicago was a huge town for for Poy Dog when they were in Austin because XRT played them uh, they got a great start at the Cubby Bear and stuff like that and Lounge X was very supportive of them and I just sort of fell in with that circle and I was really happy I mean I was happy to be playing for a lot of people but I was happy to be um, expanding my style a little bit I was happy to not be the front guy to just be a guitar player I wanted to I wanted to call my own bluff to see, um, are you as good a musician as you think you are or aspire to be? You know, put yourself in a position that's a little bit uh, above your comfort zone. I think that's something that I, I felt like I was doing all along. I wanted, to, I wanted to see what other people were doing. I wanted to play with other people. I wanted to try to collaborate, whatever. So I, I, I really enjoyed being just a guitar player. And, and learning new styles and learning how to maybe not turn up so loudly and know when to not play in a song. That's part of the thing that I really learned over the years from Poy Dog was the importance of just not, you know, knowing when to stop playing and things like that. I just never known that the slugs really were kind of notoriously full on, all of us together. And that made for a great style of music, you know, but when you try to expand on that, then maybe, you know, maybe we weren't as successful or whatever. But um, so I was really, I really loved Frank and Max's people and, um, and it just sort of, they, they, they sent something in me. They're like, well, let's, let's keep him as one of these components of this new band we're putting together. And so there'd be a different bass player each month, a different drummer, but I kept getting called back, you know? And so after a couple of months, they're like, yeah, we're, we're redoing Poidog. We'd like you to be in it. So that was, that was very early in 93. Now, are you counting on music one way or another to make your living at this point at some point and there was a little time when i was able to do that um my um uh 
I was I was working, you know, point I was we were doing stuff. We were we would do big shows around town, and we would kind of get out on the road like locally, or we you know we could rent a couple buses and do stuff and make money that way. And um, um, I think we were we were living really cheaply, my wife and I. And then and um, I was working other sort of odd jobs, but nothing like at an office necessarily. I was I was I was able to survive. My wife was working, um, but then. When our daughter was born, '93, she was born. I still had a little time where I where I was kind of w- working, not real jobs and stuff. But it came to a, it came to a point where I had to I had to work um, in an office or get a, get kind of a job that you know had benefits and all that sort of thing. And um, you know, Poitag was there's so many people involved. You sure. Know, you know, if it was a, if it was a a four-piece band, everybody would be doing all right. But there's there's a lot of there's an office to run. You know what I mean? The, sure. The, the band is doing its own albums, and so you know there's personnel that need to be paid. So it it was apparent at some point that that I had to to start working. Eventually, I got a job as a copywriter. You know, this guy hired me, and I I was learning as I went. So you were able to balance kind of a day job situation and continue to play music. I was, yeah, and. Oh, as the years have gone on, the the days of Poydog doing uh, or the Slugs doing any kind of cross country travel, they're they're not happening for for me anymore. I don't remember the last time I was out, but it was probably within the past maybe ten years that I did some stuff on the East Coast and the West Coast with Poydog. I've done I've done a number of things. I've played all over the country, played some amazing places and stuff. Um, um, but but. Poydog's travel now is so limited. It's weekends, and it's a scaled-back version of the band. And I just can't. Sure. I can't get away. And you know they don't necessarily need two guitarists up there. So, but I'm. It's it's perfect. It's fine for me. I don't have any. I don't have that set of. You know, at some point I got a little bit more practical about whatever aspirations I had. You know, to in terms of full-time rock work, stardom, all that stuff. I right. I never. I never. How know. how hard is it like putting that stuff in the rearview mirror? At uh, the time, you know, it was. It, it's been. It, it hasn't been necessarily that hard because there's always been something there. Th- stuff has taken its place. New priorities have presented themselves. You know, like I. Yeah, I know. I, I you know, I'm I'm working. I'm I'm creating music and stuff. And 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 something as much you know. As, Poi Dog's been a very big part of my life, but um, it's not the vehicle for my music. You know, it's not it's not where I go to write and express myself. And I've just started writing recently with the new band, Sunshine Boys, and that's really been all-consuming for me, and that's been a great source of happiness for me. And seems like a better um uh arena for my for my focus you know in terms of music it's not that i'm not putting any attention on point dog or it, but the, but are you i guess part of the question for me is and it's something on my mind as well at what point those things that you love you know and maybe that we have certain aspirations for things as we're going through but maybe at some point it takes a it starts to occupy a different space in our lives 
but there's this desire to keep doing it. You start to realize it's about the doing it more than it's about the ambition, I guess, is what I'm getting at. That's exactly it. I'm always working on something, and I really enjoy working, and I really... Um, I, I'm happy to have projects that keep me busy. Sometimes I'll find myself in a situation where it's uh, three or four nights in a row and I'm doing different things and I live a long way away and there's a lot of driving and there's a lot of doing in my day job and stuff. So, um, but I, I'm, I, I appreciate the fact that I can be called. People like, well, if Michael, well, I'm, yeah, Michael Shannon did that thing, and I was lucky enough to be a part of that. That's, you know, it's like you learn you learn a lot of songs for one show. Right. Was, you know, I did a, I did a thing with uh, Robert Pollard, Guided by Voices guy. Oh yeah, okay. Who, like we we um, Jason Narducci, a guy around town, you know, plays with Bob Mold and Super Chunk and stuff. He's he's often a guy who'll put together something for somebody else, and we we learned. 50 Robert Pollard songs or something like that for two gigs. Wow. You know, we did a thing at the Metro and then we did something down in Kentucky and that was it. Was, uh, it, was it gratifying? It, it, we were supposed to do two shows in New York, but there was some mix-up between him and the promoter and he just canceled it. So it was, it was, it was not gratifying, honestly. Ah. You know, so How about the Shannon thing? That, actually, that was cool. That he was, was a cool kinda... dude, yeah. We, we learned a, a bunch of Smiths. I don't know if we learned one record or we just learned a bunch of different Yeah, I thought songs. it was a record. It was The Queen Is Dead. Yeah. And then a bunch of other songs. Right, yeah. right. It was cool. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, stuff just happens. You're a great role model in a way <laughs> for like being passionate about what you do. I mean, Expo, and we should talk about that for a minute, but Expo is the perfect, it's just a great, good time band that you could just tell... Everybody in the band loves playing the music. Yeah, like, I don't get the feeling you guys have a set list that's. I mean, it does aim to it does please ultimately, but it, you don't really strike me as aim to please guys. The thing about Expo is, and the reason I don't really think of it as like a cover band or a, what there's there's just a take on, and, and it's also in a sense a very kind of deep cuts band at times too. It's mm. it, you know you get hits and things like that, but you guys. The way you guys approach the music, it just feels like pure fun and passion coming from the stage. And it's very, you know, invigorating as somebody in the audience. I just always feel like I'm having a ball when that's happening. But it's in large part because it seems like you guys are having a ball. And that's that's um, that's a great assessment. And I take that to heart because the um, that w that's the, the goal was never let's put together a cover band and play the crowd favorites and everything like that. It was more of, um, I, I know a ton of songs and in some, you know, in some obnoxious way, it can be my party trick. You know, you know, what's the, what they say, what is the, the quickest way to see who the biggest asshole at your party is, is to put out an acoustic guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, but, like I say, I've I've just accumulated this big storage of songs and stuff, and I I I've seen so many so many bands, so many cover bands playing songs that they felt that they had to play or that it wouldn't be a successful gig if you didn't have Dock of the Bay or Brown Eyed Girl. Nothing against those songs, but I want 
a Kenny, our keyboard player, we've we've played in a in some other bands before, and we were doing this tour of of Europe a few years ago. We were hacking around, and I was just like, we just started talking, and I I, I had this idea, and I started sharing it with him. And, excuse me, I just was like, I think we could do a band that played stuff that it really it really the band likes, you know, and 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 I. I I kind of the more I talked about it, the more it started to form, and and he was on board with it, and I I knew that I that it was going to be Kenny and I, and then I started p- thinking about people, and there was a guy Ralph, the bass player, who's a friend of mine since uh, middle school, since you know we lived near each other, and we just you know he wasn't a, he wasn't my best friend, but he I knew he played bass, and I'd see him sometimes at these gigs in Park Ridge, and I thought he's I like his feel, he's a good player. And then John Carpenter was a guy that I used to cross paths with uh, when his band, um, uh, Phantom Helmsman, would be playing. And we knew each other a little bit, and then we got reconnected in a weird way. And we were all the same age, and we were all bald. And I was just like, I, 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 I called each, each guy one on the same day, and I just like described this band that I wanted to have. And, and they, they were all in. They were all in. And so I sent them two CDs each of like, you know, it had about 50, 45, 50 songs. Okay, okay, here here you go. Let's learn all these. And they were some hits, like you say, that there were some things that I just really loved. And that was the thing, and that continues to be the thing that keeps us from getting bored. Not only do we have a very big selection of songs that we can focus in on different corners of these set lists, you know, if we find our, you know, if we we can keep it fresh in that way, but there are things that we really love. Both sides now, you know, there's there there's stuff that's that's real crowd pleaser, but but we just happen to like it, and that's how my we, old school, my old school with the horn section, yeah, yeah, and and that's because we started out as a four piece, and then Max, my my dear friend from Poydog, just basically came to see us one night, and he goes, yeah, you guys. And I said, y'all need some horns, and it's going to be me. So then the horns joined up, and that, that ex- exploded our repertoire. And, and every once in a while, we'll do a, a gig, just the four of us, to kind of reboot and reconnect. And um, But it's it's been based on stuff that I love. I foisted on them some weird things, you know, but they everybody embraces it, and it's always it's been it's been a real great thing because we didn't, you know, we don't play requests. We we just yeah you're not a jukebox no we just say you know the the feeling is you're gonna you're gonna probably find something that you like and just let us go to work here and we do it and you know it's it's uh, it's been really enjoyable and it's been always been fresh because we you know we like what we're doing so Steve Dahl yeah. how, how do you meet Steve how do you what makes what gets that going. Um, and have you done? Had you done radio prior to that? No, but I always loved radio. I always wanted to be in radio. As a matter of fact, if I that goes back to my 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 dad was a TV guy, and my brother naturally followed him. My brother was much more into. He sat at my dad's side more and picked up everything, and it was really in his in his wheelhouse. My brother, and so he gravitated toward that. I I was not, but my uncle. My dad's brother was a radio guy. He was he would do overnights on WDAI, like oh. like real like freeform stoner stuff. You know, Robert Klein would come in and Steve Martin would come in and he played really cool music and everything. And and then he um, 
he would he he worked at WFYR, an old station, and he um, he wrote a ton of radio commercials. He won some Clio awards. He was a voiceover guy, and I I I naturally I kind of followed him a little bit. He was my dad's younger brother, Wayne Julin, and uh, so I naturally I I kind of looked to that a little bit more. I felt like I I had more of the music and radio side, and my brother was more a TV guy. So. Part of part of my love for radio um, came from my uncle, and um, and I wish he was alive to hear me on the radio. You know, he's not. He, he, my dad and my uncle they both died like a week after their seventy seventh birthday. Wow, it was really weird. And just timing was, you know. So I, after that happened, my brother and I were like, look, man, when we get seventy seven. <laughs> we got let's keep in touch. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, but. Steve, I'd listened to from day one, and he, you know, he at home everything, you know, WGN. The radio was locked on WGN, but oh, when we man. started, you know, the word gets out at high school about about him, and you know, you just the you know the, we we tuned in right away, and we loved it, and it was just blew our minds, you know, a sophomore in high school or something. So, and it's strange to be sitting across from him now, but I definitely like if you were going to ask me that like the kind of comedy influences or whatever that I'd had over my life I you know he was one of them for sure and so I always kept tabs on what he was doing and never really met him or anything I mean I think I met him backstage at a show one time um, but when I was working a copywriting job uh, I, I, I forget what when it was but I remember that Steve was podcasting and I thought well um, I should subscribe to that because I have a long drive and I'd like to hear that. And and then I think I was I was messing around on Facebook or whatever. And I, I saw him. I saw you know I was like oh, I'll throw him a friend request. And I think it was on his personal page rather than his show page, whatever. And then a friend of mine who was listening to the podcast said, you know, he's talking about you. I said, you know, like he got, he said I got a friend request from this Dag Julin or something like that. And his producer was like, oh no no he's. A, the great Doc Jewel, and he's a musician. Everybody knows him, or whatever. So I heard I was being talked about, and then I subscribed, and I start just because I started. I watched one out of listen, and I, I'd been meaning to do it anyway. And I'd heard him struggling with some piece of music he was doing for a for a bit, and um, and I just sent him a theme, unsolicited. I just thought, you know, because I think that you know there are times like if he's poking around trying to find something. It can drive you mad. I'm just like, here, let me do it. Here's your theme, <laughs> you know. And and he liked it. And he, I think he emailed back, you know, like, oh, can you make a an instrumental version or a, you know, whatever. And 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 then, sort of a correspondence began. And and I think I might have provided him with some other piece of music or something like that. And just this sort of loose correspondence began. And it was at the same time that he. Um, you know, he when he when when his contract ran out, he, he was off the air for a while, but his contract was still going on. And so he brought all his staff into his house, and they started podcasting. And then the podcast went behind a paywall, and his expenses and became very different. And he was, you know, that was you know sure. he, paying for a staff and, and all that stuff. He trimmed back severely, and he it, it was at a time when. I think at that point I was working 20 hours a week at MeTV. You know, I wasn't doing anything. And um, 
my wife and I were in the house. We're just like, she's, she was working part-time at the post office, not making, you know, not, not sure when she was working. I wasn't, you know, not sure how often I was. So we were severely underemployed, you know, and, um, you know, burning through whatever savings we had. And I, and we were talking in, in our dining room, and I'll never forget this, and it's the truth. And we just, I looked at her, and I said, well, one of us is going to have to go to the jewel store and get an application, you know, t- to get a full-time job. And she's like, yep, it's going to have to happen. So then she left the room. And I looked at my phone, and there was an email from Steve. And it said, um, are, you, are, you, are you working full-time? I'd like to get you more involved in the podcast. I mean, it happened in that, that, that kind of timing. And I sent an email back. And that afternoon, I, I went to it like, like that afternoon. I was, I was in the car within probably half an hour and drove out to his house. And he, you know, met him and Janet. And we sat around and talked for a while. And he, he was telling me what was going on. And he, again, you know, based on maybe I'd met him at, at a live event. Since, since I started sending him music, I brought him some of my records or whatever just to show that I was a real guy or, you know, knew what I was doing or something. And based on that, he recognized whatever, you know, he liked my music and maybe my sense of humor came through in the music or whatever, and he brought me on. It was the craziest thing. Wow, that's, it was that's a, great. Yeah, and, and um, so I came on without having a lot of years behind a microphone or a reputation like that, but... But, but it's pretty freeform, I would guess, especially the podcast, maybe more than the... The podcast is pretty freeform. Yeah. We, we get to talk about anything. Right. The radio show is, you know, I'm still I'm still learning that, um, but it's a it's a it's a good it's a good team that we have, and I've have enough history with him as a listener. Uh, I think that I I feel like I can I know how to make him laugh. I know how to maybe keep him going. Which is really them. the greatest. I mean, even when he and Meyer were going full force. When Meyer could get him right to like just laugh uncontrollably, that was always the greatest. Those were the greatest moments. They were where yeah. you know he's trying to talk and he can't yeah. get it out. Right, and I just think just that notion of the way his life and continues to, I guess, carried into that show. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. I can remember on thanksgivings do you remember this they used to do thanksgiving from his house yeah yeah and i can remember sneaking off on thanksgiving that were you know that we were having and going off into a bedroom turning on the radio oh, for and sure. just spending at least a half hour Did the same hiding thing. out yeah. listening to steve gary janet and all yeah. them have thanksgiving dinner oh yeah and it it was just amazing radio yeah really. it was like nothing else and you know i was i was working in um uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a flunky job, driving driving a, a truck around, you know, and and I was just so glad to be out on the road in the afternoons because I would just listen and I would, uh, I loved listening to those guys and 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 um, it was a big part of it. Big part of my day was 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 spent doing that and and uh, I remember I I was doing some other job where I was driving around with. Um, these big 20 liter jars and glass jars of this chemical. Like it was like a rendered from, from pigs lymph nodes. And it was turned into a serum that would help people with arthritis. And it was a lab up on the North side. And, you know, I was driving around and, uh, 
carefully transporting it from the lab back to the to the cooler at the main office. And Steve and Gary were out, and they did something really funny. And I like got casual with the car and broke these fucking things and it like ruined I got immediately fired it was the cardinal rule you couldn't break whatever you do don't break the bottle I ruined everything because they were making me laugh it was crazy so I felt like he owed me a job after that (laughs) (laughs) but you guys are doing what six hours a day our podcast is a is a, an hour plus and then we have four hours on the radio yeah so so somewhere between five five and and six, six yeah man that's a lot of time yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of talking for an introvert. Do you find that you get kind of like in a is there sort of a groove that you try to get into every day where it's like you guys are just the engine starts to go and then the thing takes off? How hard is it to kind of after 6 hours the day before come back and do another 6 hours of just You know, I don't know. It's just it just that's the requirement. So you don't even think about it facing up to it of oh my god, I got to do that again. It just that's that comes with that's the, the territory. That's the job. Yeah. So, we, um, you know, the, you know, by the time we get to Friday and and we have full shows because, you know, a lot of times we'll get half an hour or an hour or ninety minutes off because the Bulls are playing or the or the Sox are playing. You know, they'll cut into our time a little bit. Then those are that's you know that's every once in a while that's a relief. But when you're crawling to the end of a week, you know, you're really happy to have that time off. It's a lot of, based on you know based on on. Um, the day job, and then if I've got gigs at night, my my whole life is like output. <laughs> you know, that's what I do is I create output. You know, I, it's it's music, it's talking, it's just it's all coming out. That's all. So I guess I have to you know soak it in and fill up again somehow. So, but I realize I'm just that's kind of what I do. You know. In 10 years, Sue Salvi's eldest son will in all likelihood be college-bound. How will she handle the ever-escalating cost of a college education? She has a thought. Actually, she has a wish. I've never been one to eat a lot of fast food, but I've recently started wolfing it down like a crazy two-headed hell beast. Because my kid needs to go to college in 10 years, and my best bet for paying for it is to find a severed thumb in some damned chili, or inside a hot dog, or fried as a french fry. God, please send me a finger fry. It would mean so much to my family. I mean, this could happen at a non-fast food restaurant too, but it's that corporate spray-flavored money that could really endow my child with an excellent education from a highly regarded university. So I risk the heart disease if it means my baby has a chance at, I don't know, learning the skills to someday create proprietary software that would work over multiple platforms. I will shoulder the cellulite so that eventually he could go on to get a good job and not have to pray for the possibility of ingesting just the tip of a severed thumb before wondering why it doesn't taste like chili meat and spitting it back out to realize it tastes more like pay dirt. I don't want my baby praying for thumb food like his mother. And I guess you could consider the cellulite an occupational hazard, a carpal tunnel of sorts. I fantasize of the day I can bring the thumb up to the manager laid out on the tray and say, I found this human digit in my food. 
Depending on the specifics, maybe I'd quip, thumbs down on my food and do that thing with my eyebrows to telegraph how pleased I am with my own cleverness. In fact, I've prepared a wordplay for most of the fingers in case it's not a thumb. Something rings funny about my food. Can I point something out to you about my food? My food is giving me the bird and it's not even chicken. Unless it is chicken, and then I'd have to massage that line a little bit. After some moments of sauced appendage examination, maybe pushing it around with a straw or something, calling over some other employees, and then ushering me into the back room, would he just start handing over bags of money to me right then and there? Would he ask me to hold on for a moment while he retrieves a Yale mom sweatshirt from the safe? As he's had to have known that this day would come, right? Would I have to mumble something like, you better hope it's just a thumb and not an elongated toe, because a foot-derived digit is tons less sanitary than something from the hand. Or maybe that's just an assumption, because in reality, hands probably carry a lot more germs than feet, even though feet are totally disgusting, and I would never want to be touched by a bare one. Come to think of it, maybe a toe would be better. I could use my established hate of feet as evidence of more emotional distress. I could have my lawyer call Becky Eldridge to testify about the time I yelled at her when she dared to poke me with her bare foot. I mean, a toe could really elevate the whole situation to doctorate proportions. A toe could be the difference between an intellectual and just a really smart person. Look, at this point, I don't really care the specific appendage, only that I almost eat it and then that I catch myself. Sometimes at night, I torture myself with the possibility that I already ate one, with no future education fund to show for it. Sometimes I tell myself, with all that fast food I've eaten, there surely has to have been a piece of an ear or a partial finger in something. I mean, would a human nail get me anything? Maybe just community college tuition? Every day before I visit whatever fast food establishment I'm going to, I make sure my phone is fully charged so that if I'm blessed with that severed finger, I can immediately take pictures and tweet them out to the world. God, I want that finger on my lips so badly I can taste it. Then after the Twitter sphere explodes and the Reddit sphere combusts, I could just sit back and wait for the settlement offer to roll in, communicated to me by my lawyer who will have ingratiated himself to me with a pro bono offer so that he could become the area's leading severed appendage ingestment settlement lawyer. The go-to guy to get your eight-a-finger college money. In terms of it being a finger, I mean, I suppose a rat ear or a baby bird would be just as much of a boon, but a severed thumb is what I'm truly hoping for just seems like it would be the quickest path to a settlement. An animal part seems less cut and dry. An act of God, God forbid. I guess a human appendage just seems more traumatizing. And the more traumatizing the foreign object, the bigger payday. And the bigger payday, the nicer housing and food plan. But until that glorious day of blessing, I'll just keep plugging along, doing what I do, closely examining all my food, memorizing the taste of my own human flesh for detection purposes, 
and reading to my child to prepare him for entrance exams. Thanks to Sue Salvi for sharing her dream with us. Thanks, of course, to Doc Julin, and thanks to you for tuning in. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this has been the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Until next time. Thank you.